From Selma, Alabama, would you please welcome storyteller Miss Catherine Tucker Wyndham. I can't believe I'm 92, and but I am, and uh, my father said to me, but he says, said, when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening, and it's a rare thing these days, listening, listening to the human voice, listening to one person talking to another person, listening. We have forgotten how to listen, how to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. Daddy said, listen. God gave you two ears and one mouth, and he expected you to use them in that proportion. (laughs) And the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning. And laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh. Laugh at ourselves. Laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says. But we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people. And you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving. Loving. That God put us here to love each other, to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says, I love you, more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, and now is the time to do it. Tell stories and tell each one with love. Ending with, I love you. I love you. Thank you. Thanks to Catherine Tucker Wyndham, speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at the age of 92 about the importance of stories. I'm Amy Antonucci, here to welcome you to True Tales Radio, coming to you live from WSCA's West End Studio, 909 Islington Street in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. True Tales Radio is a place for local people to come and share their true stories with our on-air listeners and in-studio audience, and to come and be a part of their local independent radio station here in the seacoast of New Hampshire. Tonight, we have six storytellers on the theme of family. First, our underwriters for tonight's program are... Jan Hansen, who believes in the unique value of having an independent community radio station in the Seacoast. Yay, Jan. And thanks to Pat Spaulding, who believes in stories for grown-ups on True Tales Radio, and who is curious to know, hey, what's your story? Thanks, Pat. So here's how our show will progress tonight. You're going to hear six storytellers, all local folks, who are going to bring us a true story from their lives. Um, We give everyone up to 10 minutes for their telling. We do not here have a rating system, no voting, no judgment. It's really just plain storytelling. We want folks in the community, we want everyone in the community, and beyond to have the opportunity to come in and share their true stories. Um, Tonight, we do have an in-studio audience. It's very small because we continue to be in the middle of our studio upgrade. 
which we are so excited to someday unveil to you all. Meanwhile, we do thank the folks who are here tonight to help us um, feel like we're doing this as a community and uh, liven things up. So with that said, Pat will introduce our first storyteller. Come on up, Pat. Hi, everybody. Glenn Bergeron lives with his wife, Trudy, in Greenland, New Hampshire. He retired from the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard, where he worked for 45 years as a tool and die maker. Alongside that, Glenn had a very interesting second career. He was raised in Newmarket, New Hampshire, where for 37 years, his parents owned and operated the Rockingham Ballroom. Glenn worked there for 26 of those years, managing it with his mother for the final six years after his father's death. He has the good fortune of having met most of the great band leaders of the big band era, except for Lawrence Welk. Glenn remembers many experiences from those ballroom days, but tonight's story is an unwanted memory. Come on up, Glenn. Thank you, Pat. Owning a ballroom really has certain advantages. You meet a lot of wonderful people, and you get a chance to hear some very interesting stories. There's one story I heard, uh, there's one guy that was talking to me one night, and he said, you know, he said, the best ballroom I've ever been to, other than the Rockingham, was the Wonderland Ballroom in Revere. And he said, the reason why that's so great is, not only does it have a huge dance floor, but it's got another ballroom or dance floor on the second floor. So I was thinking about that and I said, wow, I better go see that place before they tear it down. So one weekend, I took a rare Saturday night off, went out, bought some new clothes, a new pair of gray slacks, new white shirt, tie, v-neck sweater. I got a date for that night and we drove down to Revere, Mass to see the Wonderland Ballroom. When we got there, I walked in and I was amazed by the immense size of the place, huge dance floor. The seating arrangement was tables and chairs, cabaret, classy, just like the Rockingham. So, and I noticed that they had a big crowd that night. And I said to my date, I doubt if we're going to even get a seat in here, maybe the back row at best. So when we get up to the front, I was talking to the uh, head hostess and told him about my story briefly and I was the owner of the Rockingham Ballroom. Oh, owner of the ballroom, huh? We'll sit you right in the front. So I said, wow, I wasn't asking for that. But hey, this is great. So they sat us right in the front row, right on the edge of the dance floor. So the first thing I did was sit my date down, and I was going to look for the bar to get a couple of drinks. Now, the bar is located way at the other end of the hall. So I decided to get down, and uh, of course, the natural progression would be if you were going to walk a long distance like that, you would walk along in the empty dance floor, quickest way to get there. But I decided to take the uh, superintuitous route. I was going to walk between the tables, kind of check out the place, maybe silently count heads, see what was going on. As I was walking through the tables and in between the tables, I noticed that the section that had the cabaret tables opened up to this uh small area, 25 feet square, and they had no tables in there at all, just a few chairs, but a lot of women, various ages, 20s to maybe 40s, 50s, and these were the single women. They were standing there 
primping and preening, putting their lipstick on, getting ready for, for the dance. And over to the side, to the left, there were two long benches parallel to each other. And on those benches, there were about 20 women, 10 to a side. And they were all facing each other, the legs facing each other, and they were putting on their dance shoes. And uh, sitting that way made the alleyway a little bit uh, tight, a lot tighter than, than it normally would be. So the bar uh, was on the other side of that, and I had to walk through them in order to get to the bar. So naturally, I made my excuses like, pardon me, excuse me, pardon me again, thank you, oops, thank you, ma'am. And as I was walking through, a few of these ladies would look up, kind of disgusted. Then when they saw me, they kind of smiled. One after another, they looked up, and they were smiling at me. And I heard one of them in the back said, hey, look at this guy. Come over here, check this out. <laughs> so I'm walking down, and I'm going, okay, you know, and... Uh, thinking to myself, well, maybe, maybe they haven't seen somebody this young going down there. <laughs> so uh, then, I, then I, I was walking by, and other ladies were looking up and doing the same thing, looking up. At first, they had a, you know, kind of like a, a blank expression. Then they went to a smile, and then some of them started giggling, and some of them kind of laughed a little bit. So once I got through it, I went to the bar, ordered my drink. I'm starting to think. I said, hey, this... Uh, you know, this has been a pretty wild trip down this little alleyway over here. And, uh, and I can't understand why all these ladies are all charged up. So I said, I wonder, uh, is, it, is it my charming good looks? Is it, is it the new clothes that I bought? Is it my cologne? So when I got the drinks back, I turned around to head back to the table. And uh, conventional wisdom tells you that if you have two full drinks in your hand, the only way to make it back to your table without spilling it is to take the easiest route, which would be walking back down the empty dance floor. But with the male ego being what it is, I said, hey, if these ladies got a big charge out of me coming down that way the first time, I think I'll go by again and give them another shot at me, right? So I started walking through that gauntlet of women again, and... Uh, and then I was thinking, wow, I shouldn't do this because some of them were kind of annoyed when I first went through there. But when I started walking through there, they weren't mad. They were glad to see me. One of them said, hey, look, here he comes again. <laughs> so I walked through there and I'm holding the drinks way up high. All right, not to spill them. So as I'm walking through and I'm going high, high, ho, high, and they, of course now they're ready for me. And a few others I see from the side that missed me before come walking up and they want to take a look at me, right? So I said, okay, I'm, I'm thinking, wow, you know, this is cool. I like this. And then I walked by this one lady. I'll never forget her. She was off to the left, sitting down, putting on her shoes. She had a nice maroon dress. Her hair was coiffured just right with a swirl in the back. She's probably middle-aged. She looked at, up at me and I saw her eyes get wide, big, and they almost bugged out a little bit. Then she looked at me, she pursed her lips, blew me a kiss, and gave me a wink. So I looked down at her, and I winked at her back. So I'm, going to my, I'm saying to myself, wow, I must be a real celebrity around here. I got a front row table, and I'm getting all this treatment. This is great. So by the time I get back to my table, I was really full of myself. I took the drinks, I sat them down on the table, and then I saw it. My fly was open. <laughs> 
It wasn't open just a little way. It was open all the way. My shirt tails were hanging out. There was nothing there left for the imagination. I looked over to the people or to the area that I just came from. They were all laughing. All the ladies were laughing. The couple, the two couples that were sitting next to the table next to us, they were laughing. I sat down slowly as I was sitting. I was zipping up my zipper. And I was thinking, I must be the only guy in this place with gray slacks, a white shirt, and a red face. (laughs) Now, that incident happened over 40 years ago. But I remember it as though it happened yesterday. I can still remember every one of those ladies' faces. (laughs) I remember the expressions on their faces, and I also remember their gestures. And then I started to wonder. I wonder how many of those ladies remember me? (laughs) Or how many of those ladies remember a young man so many years ago who on a Saturday night at the uh, Wonderland Barroom in Revere, Mass, walked by them not only once with his fly open, (laughs) but twice and shared with them his most embarrassing moment. I wonder, ladies and gentlemen, I wonder. Pat? Thanks, Glenn. I bet you're still to this day unforgettable to those ladies. <laughs> Next up, we have Elizabeth Kirshner. She is a writer and poet from Kittery Point, Maine, who has published several volumes of poetry, many essays, and most recently, a memoir titled Walking the Bones, published by Piscataqua Press right here in Portsmouth. Elizabeth has taught creative writing at various colleges and universities and now offers local poetry and memoir writing workshops. I'm sure she'd be happy to talk with anyone about those. Tonight, she will share an excerpt from her memoir in the story, Sheep in Need of Shepherd. Thank you, Pat. This is an excerpt from my memoir, as as Pat has kindly mentioned. Uh, The title is actually Waking the Bones. Oh, is it? Yeah. What did I say? Walking. (laughs) It's a little different. Sure about that. It's okay. No big deal. (laughs) No big deal. But I need to contextualize this story a little bit for it to make sense in the larger realm of things. Uh, The memoir is bookended by my years, my wonderful seven years here back in the seacoast in Kittery Point. Um, I came here at the demise of my marriage, pretty lost and pretty broken, and um, started remembering things that nobody would want to remember from my childhood. And, and in fact, I was uh, violence was perpetrated upon me by both my mother and father. Um, and the memoir really isn't about that. Either. I mean, those are the sort of the catalyst moments in my life that make the larger schema of things make sense. The memoir really is about the human capacity to heal, the miraculous will we have to not just survive, but to thrive. So this particular excerpt happens here in Lee, New Hampshire, where 
I'm, you know, I'm young, I'm a writer, I'm taking every crappy job I can, every crappy apartment I can just to get by. Well, this wasn't a crappy job. I had an opportunity to go live and work on a horse farm because two boys had just lost their mother in a car accident. So my job was to take care of the boys and the animals. My parents come out to visit. Uh, they're not too thrilled with my life choices, never were. May they rest in peace. Do you want help with the evening feed, I ask, as I open the grain bin. The horses nicker softly as I scoop out sticky grain that smells of molasses, trampled grapes. I need a drink, Mother flatly states. Father chimes in, we both need a drink, right this minute. Soon, I say, but I, I, I need to finish the barn chores first. Hooves thud against the stallboards like logs turning on a fire. I make my rounds, note how the barred windows in each stall look like those in medieval castles. Almost done, I pronounce as I soundly thump Tarragon's rump. He's a small randy stallion, has his own paddock so he can't get to the mares. I wish the father, Arthur, had a paddock too. Come on, I rally, let's feed the sheep. My parents sheepishly follow me out into the winter night, which has just fallen like an ermine dream. The rooster, the rooster crows heedless of the hour. The black barn dog howls. I'm scared, Mom says. I know this is true. I know she lives in a perpetual state of fear. She's fragile, bird-like, has the fossil of a bird with the dinosaur's bone in its body. I can't help but want to guide her away from the fear she perpetuates. Dad's scared, too, his face hooded by the collective magnitude of the winter night. We trudge through the snow toward the pen where the sheep huddle like soft gray roses. I hear Mother's raspy breath, how it gaps blindly. I long to feed her drops of air from an eyedropper, honey drops as if to stop her from downing the tinctured liquor she consumes. Dad doesn't sound much better. He huffs as he shuffles. This man whose footfall once frightened me into submission now pads through snow, barely upright. The forces of destruction he once used upon me are destroying him. Both my parents are being destroyed from within. I listen, hear how their breaths barely scratch the air, am a student of the architecture of breath. I draw my own in deeply, as though I were to about to embark on a Baroque requiem. But the only requiem we hear is the baas of sheep. We approach the pen. The falling snow is no longer dainty. It stings as though each flake were a tiny diamond bit. I feel how these diamond bits of snow are lacerating my parents' faces. Mother lets out a pig squeak, like mine as a child, and the sheep, huddled like mothballs, baa even louder, way too loud for just a bevy of hungry sheep. Alarmed, I single to my parents to stand still. They do, stock still. I circle the pen, come to a dead stop. There, in a welter of moonlight, is a newly deceased deer. Don't look, I say in a big voice, 
to mom and dad. Just go back to the car and wait. I'll be there soon. Get your drinks. We want drinks now, dad demands. This is a sheep pen, not a bar room, I shout. Go to the car. When I get glance back at them, they move slowly, painfully so, like two old hunchbacks. They do not leave tracks behind them. I turn back to the deer, whose blood flowers pattern the intricately patterned snow as I surmise her crisis. How she got into the pen eludes me, but it's clear that she rammed herself to death, trying to get back out. I understand, far too intimately, her frenzied fear, for my pen had been my kinderkoffin, the playhouse, and beyond. Sheep, I whisper, just sheep, not wolves in sheep's clothing. I gather her still warm body in my arms. They're sheep, only ewes, and soon to be lambs. I sob, bury my face in her limp neck, realizing that for this deer, whose sheep had in fact been wolves in sheep's clothing, but are no longer. Now they're merely sheep in need of a shepherd, just like my parents. Must I be the shepherd who guides them? As I heft the deer in the uneasy chill, I want to breathe my breath, sweet as molasses smelling grain, into her, breathe her back to life with drops of honeyed air. Although I can't do so for her or mom and dad, I can breathe back life into the little bits I was. With the deer blanketed in my coat, I make the long trek back to the farmhouse to give her to Arthur like a sacrificial offering. I then take my parents to a tavern, let them drink, pick their food, while I pick at mine. There's no talk between us, only their drunken slurs hanging in the opaque interior air. During midnight's blackest hour, Arthur strings up the deer in the breezeway between my house and his. He guts her, then puts her body parts into the deep freeze. Hasn't my memory gone into the deep freeze, too? I listen to him whistle as he guts the deer while sitting up in bed, jackknife in hand, like the one father used to score angel wings into me. Min minutes glint like moonlight on its blade, minutes during which my parents trundle in deathly dreams in the old inn down the road. There in the deep freeze, too, I ache as I thaw one body part at a time, even though it will be years before my memory thaws, because remembering is done in the blood. Thank you. It is 7.01. You're listening to WSCA LP 106.1 FM, Portsmouth Community Radio, broadcasting from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. This is True Tales Radio. I'm your announcer, Amy Antonucci, and now to introduce our next storytellers, here is MC Pat Spaulding. David and Carol Clapp live for half the year in Epping, New Hampshire, and the other half in Riverton, New Zealand. I highly recommend that lifestyle. I mean, not that I live it, but I've been to New Zealand. It's great. Carol wrote a memoir about her 50s childhood on a farm titled Till the Cows Come Home. She's a regular on True Tales Radio, having told two different stories on this program. David, a retired teacher and bricklayer with a deep New England roots, is here for the very first time. He'll tell the story about his father, written by Carol, because 
According to Carol, David is a much better reader. Tonight's collaborative story is titled Grandpa Ted's Excellent Adventure. David? Our family was surprised and relieved when Dad moved in with his girlfriend Lydia nearly four years ago. And when he abruptly left her last month, we were amazed by his resolve. He said it just wasn't working out, and at age 96, he could decide such matters for himself. I'm not saying the relationship had been smooth sailing, or that it was easy on my sister Lisa, who fielded the I-can't-stand-this-anymore distress calls. We all saw it coming, but the actual breakup, the breakup itself, was a sort of perfect storm without much wind. Nobody blew up or let off steam. One week, Dad, better known as Ted or Grandpa Ted, well, one week, Ted was living with girlfriend Lydia, and the next week, she had sent him to the hospital with a stroke. Two days later, as he transferred to rehab, Lydia tripped and fell at home and also went to the hospital. She was there longer than Ted, four days. With better timing, they might have shared the same bed. We visited and found Lydia propped up and upset in more ways than one. She admitted to being overwhelmed by the living situation, she said it was just too much. The plowing, the heating bills were too high, the lawn too vast. She said she didn't have energy to manage the guest house. She announced that she would sell her property and certainly she couldn't take care of Ted any longer. Ted said fine. He didn't need to be taken care of anyway and he wasn't going back. The separation was decided from one hospital bed to another. Medicated declarations over phone lines between Portland and Damascata. He had already downsized when he moved in with Lydia. He had sold his beautiful condo in Damascata and gave his worldly belongings to his four grown kids, Susan, Lincoln, Lisa, and me. Lydia had provided Ted with all things material. He arrived at her place with his car and a trailer containing an antique dresser and the writing desk where, desk, where he conducted business all his life, mostly crafting sermons, letters, and essays. My father used to be a congregational minister, preaching in three New England states. We had assumed that, like with most people, it would be hard for him to cast aside the remnant of previous households, the furnishings and linen, books, lots of books, the dishes and heirlooms, lamps and paintings, his old fencing face mask and swords, photographs, and home movies recording clapped family life. But we were wrong. It didn't bother him a bit. Ted cheerfully summoned us kids and his ten or so grandchildren. Come, come, please come, he beckoned over the phone. Take anything you want, anything you can fit in the truck, then come back for another load. We selected three very useful items, a carved Chinese blanket chest and two retired antique clocks. Our son inherited Ted's vintage, vintage fencing gear. Back at Lydia's, nearly, during nearly four years, Ted had enjoyed watching wildlife as seasons changed and snow piled up around her custom-built cape overlooking the Sheepskit River. He had his own ensuite on the second floor and insisted on paying rent so nobody could say he was taking advantage of a younger woman. An 83-year-old, twice-widowed lass with real estate 
vehicles, televisions, and a four-acre lawn extending to her guest house. She claimed to enjoy cooking for Ted and scolded us for letting him get so skinny. She bought him all new clothes throughout the wardrobe we knew him by and dressed him to look like a guy in a catalog. Lydia wouldn't let Ted mow the lawn or wash dishes, two things he enjoyed and did well. And because he fell once, she wouldn't let him walk out to the mailbox to collect his coveted mail. Then, of course, there was the driving. He bought a new car. But she discouraged him from driving it at night, and eventually not during winter at all. Her discouragement was, of course, for his own good, enforced through long days of not talking. We all heard the reports and felt sorry for Ted being stuck there in paradise. <laughs> it is important to understand that Ted has spent a lifetime purposely mingling with people. Dad needs dialogue, not the silent treatment. He wasn't meant to survive, snowed in at the end of a long driveway named after a dead husband. Just recently, right before moving to Lydia's, Ted began lamenting that he could no longer jog across Main Street to greet friends. I've always thought of him as a boulevardier, a man about town, because he always jumps into community life with both feet. And, of course, there's Ted's work from the pulpit. He is always a nurturer. His career began during World War II as chaplain on a troop ship. He has officiated for all our weddings, now tending to the grandchildren. Until recently, he served at the local hospital. Ted has married and buried hundreds of people. Many have received both blessings. My father calls himself a nature boy and belongs to the Audubon Society. For several years, he wrote a column from the, for the Lincoln County News called A View from the Bridge, which is now published in two books. Yes, a boulevardier, a man about town a man unexpectedly released from his padded cell, a man on the loose. Flap family on high alert. What would we do to save Ted from senior warehousing? He always says he doesn't want to move in with any of us, never wants to be a burden or depend on us for his social life. And he made it very clear that he never wanted to end up in places like where he ministered, places where everyone is sitting around waiting to die. This was an emergency, with us phoning each other daily, working out a strategy, checking in with Dad. We each had an assignment. Susan would see what was available in her northern neck of the woods around Blue Hill. Lincoln would check Camden. Lisa would scope options around Bath, Brunswick. And me? Well, we don't live in Maine, so they asked me just to pray for a harmonious solution. I could do that. A week later, with Ted rehabilitated and staying at Lisa's, my brother found an independent housing complex near downtown Camden. They told me to keep praying. Take it to a higher level! <laughs> While the Mainers went to investigate a place called Quarry Hill, where there was just one empty apartment. So nice we all want to move in, declared brother-in-law Frank, reporting in. He said the space was on the ground floor, facing north, through a woodland, and with undisturbed bird habitat. It was like brand new, with lots of windows, an enclosed porch, two bathrooms, a study, a lounge, walk-in closets, modern kitchen, dinner served every night on fine linen, and real silverware. 
all comfortably within Ted's financial means. The perfect place for Ted. But would Ted meet their criteria? That was the big question. Waiting lists at other places were way too long. Who has three years to wait at a time like this? Ted wowed the housing director, and things moved fast after that. When Dad arrived at Quarry Hill, pulling into his designated parking space, he looked great. He was all smiles and back to his good old self with a polka dot bow tie, plaid shirt, and ball cap. He had worked hard during rehab to regain his balance and stride. He was determined to walk into the new place without a cane, and he did. And you never saw a happier 96-year-old rookie resident. It felt festive from the moment we entered the foyer. There was a gaggle of fine-looking older girls hanging around, almost as if they'd been waiting. Couldn't be. Could it? One woman introduced herself as Hannah and said she'd read Ted's books and would stop by at 5.30 and take him to dinner. We chuckled our way down a corridor to Dad's own door, number 159. He was gobsmacked by the scene. His jaw dropped and his hands flapped up in continual amazement. He gasped and shook his head, repeatedly uttering, Wow! I can't believe it! This is just unbelievable! Wow! Wow! In truth, we were all stunned and amazed, enthralled by the homey scene. My sisters had tastefully furnished the apartment with all of Dad's own belongings from the condo. They had returned furnishings from four years ago, and my brother Lincoln, a master furniture maker, had provided the most amazing tiger maple bed and dining table to complement the precious writing desk, dresser, and antique chairs. The kitchen featured an oval-framed picture showing Ted's mother, our grandmother, at Fanny Farmer Cooking School in Boston. Dad seemed to float through his new home. Choked up, he said, I can't tell you how grateful I am. Thank you so much. This is a place for living. Thank you for not putting me in those other rest home places. Are you sure it doesn't cost more? All true, Grandpa Ted. Same price, live or die. It's a choice. And you chose well. Thanks, David. Nice happy ending. Next up we have John Dover. He worked for 38 years as a high school guidance counselor. Whew, that's impressive. Before finally retiring to live with his wife and son in Northampton, New Hampshire. John spent his early years on Long Island adolescent years in Summit, New Jersey. He went to college at Colgate University, moved to Philadelphia, then earned his master's degree from the University of Utah. John gets around. His story tonight takes place on a summer night in 1970 that started off with great promise, and then its title is Pride and Shame. Thanks, Pat. So yeah, I, I grew up in the late 60s in Summit, um, this is a bedroom community to New York, and um, this is right in kind of the peak of the sexual revolution, which I was a believer in, but as an observer, not a participant. <laughs> um, so it wasn't my choice. Um, and uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about my mom because she kind of figures in this story. She grew up uh, uh, in Sharon, Mass. In the late 30s, uh, parents were um, Irish Catholic, 
And um, she had three brothers, so she was always called Sissy by them whenever we would go to visit. My, her, my grandfather or grandmother, it was always Sissy. Um, little story about Sharon High School. They had a balcony at the time, so when if parents wanted to go see the kids dancing um, on the Saturday night dance, they could sit up in the balcony and watch them. So grandpa uh, would go up and sit in the balcony and whistle at my mom, sissy, sissy, that's too close, too close, back off. <laughs> I didn't think of mom as being proper so much as really wanting to obey the rules of propriety. That was important to her. I had three sisters. Uh, my oldest is uh, 13 months older than I am. Um, next one down was a year and a half younger than I am. And then I have a sister that's five years younger than me. Um, and I always got along fairly well with them. They, we, we, weren't, we had our battles, but in general, we got along pretty well. So it didn't make sense to me that I was really afraid of girls in high school. Was, I just, I was interested in them. And I'd like to look at them, but I couldn't talk to them, um, despite the fact that I did so with my sisters with no difficulty. Um, so here's kind of an example of that. Uh, when I was a senior in high school, um, my middle sister says, why don't you take Nancy to the junior prom? She doesn't have a date and she would like to go. And I'm like, I don't know about this. And she's like, I think you should do it. And maybe, you know, we can work something out. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And she says, well, you know, maybe this could be some kind of deal. So, ka-ching, I'm starting to think about this now. And I said, well, you know, I love the Jersey Shore. So I said, if dad is willing to let me take the station wagon down to the Jersey Shore with my friends half a dozen times, I'm okay with this idea of taking Nancy to the prom. And so Laurie goes in and talks to my father. And my father, I think, hoping that some latent spark will come, says, okay. <laughs> and so the prom was nothing special, but the Jersey Shore was great that summer. <laughs> um, fast forward to the summer of 70, I had a girlfriend. Um, it was, this was the real thing. Um, and mom was just kind of meeting her unexpectedly. She sort of, sort of showed up, um, on our doorstep and mom was very gracious. Um, I think she would have been happy to, if my girlfriend had looked like Medusa. Okay. Because here's her son who's now a junior in college and doesn't have anybody to look after him. And I'm sure she <laughs> thought I needed looking after. Um, so, but girlfriend didn't look like Medusa. She was gorgeous. And I was not going to pass up this opportunity of her spending the night at our house. Okay. So switch for a second to my father who comes home from the office with a story from his co, not a story, but a puzzle from one of his coworkers, 12 balls. Okay. And here's how it goes. Um, you've got this like balance that you can use to weigh balls with. And these balls all look identical, but one of them is different. And it's either lighter or heavier than the other balls. But you don't know which, and you can't tell by looking at it. 
So um, what you have to do in three weighings is to figure out which is the oddball and is it lighter or heavier than the other 11 balls. So I am into this right away. I love puzzles. And girlfriend is a math major. So she's really into this too. And we're, we're, we're thinking like the brain cells are going. And the next thing we know, time to go to bed. Um, so that was good. Um, like I said, I had a plan. Um, and this was going to be ulterior subterfuge because that's how I work. And so um, she was going to stay in my oldest sister's bedroom. I don't know where Kathy was, but she was out of the picture. And that was right next to the bathroom. So I figured I can kind of go into that as if I was going to the bathroom at night and then just go into that bedroom and where everything's going to work out. I'm waiting for the um, everybody to fall asleep. And I start thinking about the 12-ball problem. And I'm thinking, how about if we do six balls against six? What am I going to learn from that? No, maybe... And again, it has to be done in three weightings. Maybe a three against three, but I feel like I, I, I need like four or five weightings then. And then I hit on four on four, and I think, yeah, maybe. Let's puzzle this out. So I'm thinking about this going crazy while everybody's falling asleep. And finally, about 1.30, I get up. I'm, I'm just walking so quietly towards the bathroom. And I get there. Coast is clear. I open the door. I walk in to the bedroom and I tap my girlfriend on the shoulder. She looks up at me and says, do you really think this is a good idea? And I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, of course it's not a good idea. <laughs> You've known me for like a long time and we haven't seen each other for two months, but do you think I've suddenly gotten common sense in two months? <laughs> so, I mean, but I don't say that. Because I've got a trump card. I have figured out the solution to the 12-ball problem. And talk about empowered. Oh, I, I mean, the force was with me. The stars were aligned. I was ready to go. I would won the Kentucky Derby. So that was the key into the bed, okay? And let's just say that the male... 21-year-old's fantasies came true that night. Everything worked out as planned until the next morning when the door to the bedroom opens up and there is my mother. And I couldn't say anything. And she couldn't either. And she goes in and she gets whatever she needs to and she backs out and then knock, knock, knock. John, I want to see you downstairs. And I mean, I, I, I felt so like I had betrayed her. I, I just felt awful about this and what I had done to her. And But I also realized that that status of, like the preferred status of being the lone boy with the three sisters, that was history. That was done. So, I mean, I had lost a lot. And I was also like really angry. How could I have been so stupid? I figured out the 12 ball problem, but I couldn't even get out of the bedroom in a timely way. I mean, it was just, oh, all these bad feelings. And 
I'm walking downstairs. It's like, you know, dead man walking. I was, uh, I, everything was lost. I, what could I say? I, there was, I was caught red-handed. And so I finally get down into the kitchen. I can barely move. And I can smell, my mother has her two favorite drugs. She's got her nicotine um, and her caffeine there on the table. And I I look up at her. She looks at me with this pathos in her face. And she says, John, I expected this of your sisters, but not you. <laughs> Thank you. That's a fine reversal on the double standard. <laughs> Coming up next, Marcy Brown. She lives in North Berwick, Maine, and has a technical communications background. Marcy is an independent contract writer in the process of building her co copy. I'm sorry, copywriting business. She also professes to be a recently reformed health nut. Still true? Yes. Good. Her story tonight is about driving from Northern California back to Boston in 1990. There are no doctors, drugs, or hospitals involved in this story, although Marcy has indicated that it does have something to do with her addiction to potato chips. <laughs> Back then, not now, because now Marcy is a health nut. Her story, California Dreamin'. Thank you, Pat. It's California Dreaming because ever since I left California in 1990, I still dream of it, of course, especially during the winter in New England and in the summer in New England. I was a rebellious teenager, so I left where I was from, which is Massachusetts, when I was 18, to get away from the family home. That was my main goal, was just to get as far away as I could. So I grabbed my best friend, Janet, and we went out to California, to the edge of the continent. My sister was already there with her husband, so that made it easy for us. My parents thought I'd be home in about a month. I came home 20 years later, and I came back because I missed my dad, and the idea was to come back and be around family again, hopefully buy a house because you really can't afford to buy one in California. The prices are prohibitive still, more so than ever, and so I packed up the car after getting rid of most of my things. I had two cats. The idea was also don't give your valuables to the moving company. So they took all my boxes. I had 5,000 pounds of things that I had not gotten rid of. But I took my jewelry and my antique pen collection in the car with me so they'd be safe. And my two cats. So I started out and I went north up to Sacramento. And the car tried very hard to quit. It began to overheat, and I didn't want it to win, so I pulled over and I let it settle down. It finally did, and I kept on, so it didn't win the first battle. A couple of days later, I was heading towards Indiana, and unfortunately, the car then did win that battle. And as I'm tooling along at about 75 miles an hour on the main highway, all of a sudden, the, the dashboard just completely lit up, and the power quit at that same moment. It was the alternator belt, which I had no idea of at the time. So the thought was, uh-oh, what do I do? So you pull over. You have no power, and all your lights are on. Something's terribly wrong. So I pull over off the road, and within about 60 seconds, an 18-wheeler pulls up behind me. My worst nightmare. An 18-wheeler. Okay, only murderers drive those. We know that, right? So... <laughs> 
I'm picturing myself on the six o'clock news in Carmel, Indiana. So he gets down from the cab, comes over to my window. I lower the window cautiously. And this young guy who was driving the truck asked me what was going on. I told him the story and he says, well, I can take you to the nearest um, gas station. I said, okay. I said, I have two cats with me. He said, well, bring them along. So we grabbed the two cat carriers and I had to climb up a ladder to get into the cab. And he's got two Dobermans. <laughs> They're sitting there right behind the two seats. And so my cats feel like I do. Like the three of us, are, we're done. So I'm in this 18-wheeler, which I've never been in before, with a strange man and two Dobermans. And my two cats are puffed up like bottle brushes. And I feel the same way. And he starts up the, the truck and he drives to the next exit, pulls in. He knows the owner of the station. They have a little chat. They, the owner comes over to me and he says he can take my car and fix it. And I realized, you know what, this guy is a great guy. And he was. He was a lifesaver. He saved me. So, uh, of course, I left my valuables in the abandoned car, which I had so carefully taken away from the movers because, heaven forbid, anybody should take them from me. But there they were on the highway in a car that had been abandoned. So I uh, got the car back in another day. It was a lot of money, but it was working again. And I got back on the highway, headed for Massachusetts, and I'm in the middle of the country, and there are wheat fields that are just beautiful, coppery, and that's where the amber waves of grain comes from. And it was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. The idea then was to stop at a place that was on my um, AAA triptychs that they'd given me, and it was Sweet Springs, Missouri, which I had chosen because of the name. It sounded good, knew nothing about it. When I got close to the town, it was nearing dusk, and there was a tremendous chaotic noise just everywhere. It was a roar. I didn't know what it was. It turned out it was the 13-year emergence of cicadas. They do this twice. They do this every 13 years, and they do it every 17 years. According to the story, they don't overlap. But you could have fooled me. That was the most noise I have ever heard in my life. There was no sleep to be had that night. So, and of course, everybody who lived there just thought it was fine. It was normal. They were used to it. So I stayed overnight there. And the next morning, I was told by the owner of the motel, you really can't miss the cinnamon rolls at the cafe next door. I said, okay. So I went in there, and, it, and that's how you know it's a small town. When you walk into a cafe, everybody stops talking and all eyes turn yeah. because they know you're from away, as we say in Maine about everybody who's from somewhere else. They knew I was from away. So I asked for a cinnamon roll, and the woman gave me a look. Obviously, I didn't know what I was asking for. And she brought, and I said it was to go, and she brought out a large box, and it was the size of a dinner plate. Truly was the most amazing thing I had ever seen. So it took me a couple of days to eat it. So <laughs> I was back in the car eating as I'm driving, and the car still wants to break down, but it doesn't do it again. And now I'm getting close to Massachusetts, which is my destination. And I don't have a reservation this time. I had one every other night during the trip. But this one last thing, I thought, well, it's Massachusetts. It's where I live. I'll find a place. What I didn't know was that the Big E, which is the exposition they do every year, was on at that time. There were no rooms at all in town, nothing reasonable. I ended up at the Holiday Inn, 
for $115, and this is in 1990, so that was money. And I had two cats, and of course they don't allow cats. So I snuck the cats up the back elevator, and I paid the money, and I stayed in the room. And I was in Massachusetts, so I'm getting close, but I'm in Eastern Mass, and the house that I'm renting is in Rockport, Mass., so I still have another day to travel. So the next day I got up early, got the cats out before anybody saw me, got in the car, and I headed for Rockport. Now, the idea there was to get to the house. Uh, there was a key to be under the mat, check it out, and then go to my dad's house because they were having a get-together because I was coming. So I got to the house in Rockport. I found the key, and I went in, and it was unfurnished, and it was just the most wonderful house. I had never seen it my dad had secured the rental for me. I'd found it online and called, and uh, it was just a great little place, and I realized that you can go home again. <laughs> so I guess I was wrong about the potato chips. <laughs> Thanks, Marcy. Bill Hurd, a.k.a. William the Great is an event photographer and armchair writer who's been a part of the Seacoast for half a lifetime in dog years. We talked about this, I think it's five and a half years? Six or so. Six years or so, okay. He believes that the only way to truly remain relevant in the lives of others is through storytelling. Here, here. Bill also uh, prefers chai to coffee, right? Is that what you said? Chai to coffee, yeah, instead of, instead of coffee. That's irrelevant, yes. but that's okay, because his story tonight is relevant. It takes place in July this month, when families across the nation gather in celebration of our country's independence to watch beautiful fires dancing in the sky. Bill will now share with us his uplifting tale about the grounded reality of fireworks. In fact, that's the story's title, Fireworks. Thank you, Pat. Um, I also like uh, short walks on the beach and, no, I mean, chai. Everybody knows chai, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's, it's yeah, better than... It is compared to coffee. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so um, every 4th of July, we're reminded how dangerous fireworks are. Um, we get a flood of stories about um, the, the unnecessary loss of life, um, all in the name of celebration, which I happen to enjoy, and I think a lot of other people do too, but um, it, it can be a very sobering thing. Um, but what I'd like to share with you tonight uh, is that, you know, once in a while, or maybe just as once, um, <laughs> fireworks can actually save lives too. No, true story. This is true tale, so... so. <clears throat> That's what, therefore, I can't lie, right? Um, so... Like all good stories, um, this um, uh, starts way back in time. Not that this is a particularly good story, but it has that in common with good stories. Um, so when I was growing up, my best friend Justin and I were fascinated with things that went boom. Um, I'm pretty sure this was uh, not an obscure thing for young males. Um, but, um, uh, well, um, oh, right. Um, but our dedication to safety um, is really... Uh, why I'm here today is why I'm, I still have my limbs and, and it's why I can uh, tell you this story. Um, um, gosh, so w we spent a lot of Independence Days um, at my house because I lived at the lake and families would compete with their fireworks displays. 
Uh, it was so great. My family never had to drive. We never had to hunt for parking or good spots on grass to see uh, fireworks right above our heads. Um, mosquitoes were definitely still an issue. Um, after good shows, you could hear the cheers echoing around the lake. And for this, uh, for us, this was really kind of one of those amazing things. Hearing cheers around the lake just echoing across, um, it's an amazing experience. Uh, if you ever have the chance, please do. Um, so uh, Justin and I took part when we could, but our, our sparklers and Roman candles just didn't seem to have the oomph to compete. Um, so our efforts never really never really uh, affected that uh, cheering, except our own, of course. Um, uh, so fast forward to our 20s. Um, equipped with a little bit of expendable income uh, and all of our limbs, uh, we thought, you know, maybe we could finally earn those cheers. So we made a plan and went to work. Um, there were a couple of glitches along the way, one of which was the fact that uh, $1,000 worth of fireworks doesn't fit very well into the back seat of a Volkswagen. Um, so we had to get a trailer to pull all our fireworks with us. And that worked out really well. And uh, a little bit later, uh, it'll, you'll see why. Um, <laughs> but um, next, we visited the lake to scout out a launch site. Uh, this is a very important part because you really don't want to upset neighbors. Um, and I actually grew up there, so I knew a good number of the neighbors still. Um, so we found one of the beats, be beaches. Um, and um, it, it was actually called, oh, I shouldn't even say what beach it is, should I? Um, but um, I happened to know some of the neighbors that were, were there, um, and we went around and knocked on all the other neighbors' doors and made sure it was okay. And because they don't hate fun, they all thought it was a great idea. Um, so July 4th rolls around, um, and we arrive at the beach just after dusk. Um, and in fact, 15 of our friends uh, were already, already waiting for us there, uh, including my sister and my niece. Um, and um, we had an audience. And this was pretty cool. This was kind of something kind of new to us. Um, we were the main event, and this was going to be really fun. Uh, so this was step three uh, about to commence. So our fireworks display was nothing short of spectacular. Um, everything we really dreamed it could be. Huge, like, they weren't quite city, you know, fireworks, but they, they were, for us, were amazing. Um, and especially for the lake. Um, so... Um, even though the families of uh, years past who used to compete were, had long since moved away um, and couldn't acknowledge it, uh, we rightfully earned our cheers from around the lake. We heard the echoes, and it was a really nice moment. Um, but um, we didn't really revel in it for long. We, uh, we cleaned up, threw all the remains into the trailer, and bolted. And that's about where things got interesting. Um, on our way out of the lake, um, Justin and I were, of course, uh, reveling in our, our, our wonders of, of fire and light. And um, suddenly Justin stopped and said, I think I hear a siren. And of course, there were, we both fell silent, listening. And nothing, you know. So we said, okay, fine. There was, there was nothing totally unrelated. Um, until we saw the uh, civilian truck with flashing red lights zoom past us. And once again, there was a little bit of silence. Um, we continued in that silent, hopeful state uh, until we saw a real fire truck, and then we knew something was really up. You know, uh, our minds were racing. What did we do? What did we miss? Uh, we were incredibly cautious, methodical, safe. This is the thing we had, we'd gotten really good about this over the years. We knew what we were doing, but we had to face the ugly truth that maybe we fouled up somewhere. Um, these trucks couldn't be unrelated given the proximity. I mean, we had just left two minutes prior. Um, so, uh, after a short discussion about how foolish it would be, we agreed that we needed to return to the scene. Um, 
So we ditched the trailer, uh, including with it all related um, fire paraphernalia, um, a couple of miles away from the lake, and then headed back to the beach. Um, and then we found that the road just beyond our chosen beach uh, had been blocked off with, a, uh, with police. Uh, there was a police officer standing by. And this was not good. This was right next to the beach at which we just fired off all of these fireworks. Um, so we parked um, and we approached the uh, officer as ignorantly and innocently as possible. Um, Hello, officer. Uh, what's going on? Um, the officer seemed kind of bored, so this was, this was a good sign. Um, he said, ah, house caught fire around the bend there. <clears throat> um, so that was, that was actually really bad. <laughs> and, you know, just to, to taunt or dare the universe, I suppose, uh, and make matters worse, I asked, oh, wow, was anyone hurt? Um, and the officer, thankfully, still seeming bored, uh, said, uh, no, they were, they were lucky. And, you know, honestly, if we didn't have that cruiser down here looking for those yahoos setting off fireworks, we'd have probably lost those folks to that electrical fire. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how fireworks can save lives. All right. Well, that is good to know for next year, right? I'm actually... Not a huge fan of fireworks, so I'll try to remember your story next, next year. All right. So thank you so much to all of our wonderful storytellers tonight with, um, who brought us these tales spanning different sorts of feelings and topics. We're really, really glad to have you all. And also to our studio audience, who, though small, were lively, and we are very much happy about that. So, True Tales Radio will be back on August 25th. Our theme that night is Balancing Acts, Managing Roles. Now, back to John Lovering for the final few minutes of audio theater. I have found my thrill on Blueberry Hill. On Blueberry Hill When I found you The moon stood still